Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. you. You might want to keep your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to work our way through it. The uh, chapter starts in kind of a disgusting place. The prophet is sitting there on the beach in a puddle of fish vomit. It's awful. You read the last verse of chapter 2, and this is a miserable situation. It's as though he's shaking his head wondering, how on earth did I get here? As we've been walking through this book for the past couple of weeks, you remember that God had called him to go to Nineveh in chapter 1, and he said, no way. That idea was so repulsive to him that instead of obeying, he took off in the exact opposite direction, which of course launched this unprecedented string of catastrophes in his life. He's asleep on the boat, and while he's asleep on the boat, this awful storm whips up. A storm so awful that the seasoned fishermen didn't, or seasoned sailors, I'm sorry, didn't know what to do. They tried everything to get back to land, but the harder they tried, the worse the storm got. And so they were reduced to praying, crying out to their gods who are no gods, saying, please help us do something. And finally, Jonah was wakened from his slumber, brought on deck, and it became clear that he was the reason the storm was hitting them the way that it did. And the only way to get out of this bind was to throw him overboard. Now, in Jonah's mind, he's thinking, this is the end of me. Nobody, nobody gets thrown over the side of a boat in that kind of a storm and survives, period. He's a dead man. The sailors resist the idea, but finally the storm is so violent, the threat is so real, they decide that's the only chance they have left. And so in this desperate act, they heave the prophet over the side of the boat, and suddenly the sea goes calm, the storm ceases. And at the same time, this huge fish appears out of nowhere and swallows Jonah. If he had thought he was going to drown in the waves, in the storm, surely when that fish swallowed him up and he was going down, he said, this is the end of me. This is it. It is all over for me. And yet right now, at this point in the story, there he is on the beach in a puddle of fish vomit trying to figure out what on earth just happened. And that's the way it is. If you've ever been in a situation where you just narrowly escaped death, or had some kind of awful diagnosis thrown your way, or experienced some kind of traumatic event. You know exactly what he's thinking right now. You're asking that same question. What on earth has just happened to me? And even more so, your mind starts to go to the place of, what does all of this mean? When I read the entire book of Jonah, it comes across to me as Jonah trying to figure out what on earth just happened? And we still got a chapter to go, so I'll leave the final answer to that to Ian next week. But he, he's, it's like he's puzzled. He doesn't know what to do. He's telling a story that he can hardly believe, and he's leaving it to us and his readers and maybe himself to try to figure out, what is this all about? You see, the book of Jonah, it's not a case study. 
A case study is one of those things where you dive into the details of what happened. You unpack how this led to that, the cause, the effect, the correlation. You try to learn from what you're experiencing in the case study so as either to duplicate the results that the case study uh, achieved or to avoid the mistakes that the case study lays out. It doesn't read like that. The entire book of Jonah doesn't read like a case study. It reads like an account, like a police blotter after an accident. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. I have no idea what to make of it. And if the chapter starts this way for the prophet, sitting in a puddle of fish vomit, it also starts with this massive city, Nineveh, this tremendous megalopolis that existed north of Israel in, in the Middle East. It's been there for centuries. It is the superpower of the world at this point. And unbeknownst to anybody, it's got 40 days to live. So there's this tension. You've got this prophet who thinks, this story is amazing. I don't know what's happening to me. And we come to the first verse of chapter 1, and the prophet realizes this story is not over yet. I'm not even sure he expected what came next. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, the message that I give you. If I'm Jonah, I'm saying, oh, no, not this again. But having been through the storm, having been through the fish, well, almost through the fish, he came out the right way, I guess. Um, having been through both, he said, I don't want that again. So I guess I'll choose the least of the evils, and I'll go to Nineveh. So... What we want to do this morning is we want to follow along with what happened. We'll use the same outline that trauma introduces to us. What exactly just happened there? And what are we to make of it? As I said, the account is terse. It's compact. The details are sparse. We assume Jonah is the writer of this narrative. But what he writes here is very mechanical. It's almost clinical, very matter of fact, very little detail left. It's not like he's weaving a fairy tale here. It's like he's giving his report to the police. And his story revolves around three basic facts, three basic events that kind of weave together. First of all, he goes and he announces the message that God gave him to the people of Nineveh. Next, the people of Nineveh believe God and respond in a way that's appropriate to what they have come to believe. And finally, God looks down, he sees what the people of Nineveh are doing and decides that he's not going to do what he had originally intended to do. Bing, 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 just like that. Now, let's just pause. We'll unpack each part for just a second. Look at the first four verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Two significant things I want us to notice in this passage. First of all, what he said. Secondly, how he said it. Okay, what he said is very simple. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The key there is that word overthrown. This is a pretty significant word. It's the same word used way back in Genesis, and Jonah would have known this, to describe what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. In an instant, in a moment, completely out of the blue, totally unexpected, the entire city in Genesis 18 was obliterated. 
fire and brimstone, fell from heaven, the scripture records, and that was it. It was all over for that city. And now Jonah comes into Nineveh saying the same thing that they may have heard happen back there in Genesis chapter 18 is going to happen to you. And the clock is ticking. 40 days is not a long time. Against that kind of a holocaust, what sort of defense are you going to amount in 40 days? That's less than six weeks' time. This city that's been around for centuries, millennia, is going to be gone, wiped from the face of the earth. And that's the message that Jonah brings to this city. And I need you to notice that it wasn't just, uh, uh, you know, soft-spoken, whispered in. I'm a little embarrassed to say this. It sounds a little bit weird, but, you know, could we talk about this a little bit? It's not it at all. It says he called out against the city. And the word called out there has this confrontational sort of bias to it. It's a loud, it's an obnoxious, it's an urgent kind of intensity. God said, call out against Nineveh. And he was expecting Jonah to storm into town and to make a commotion about what was about to happen in 40 days. And he did. Interestingly enough, this is the same word that was used in chapter 1 for the prayer of the sailors. You remember that story? Storm is tossing. They're trying to figure out how they survived this, and they finally reduced to praying to their gods, and it says they cried out. You can almost feel the urgency, the, the intensity, the complete dependence on somebody doing something on their behalf that they could not do for themselves. That's the word here. So Jonah doesn't really even seem to want anything but the overthrow of Nineveh to happen. So it must have been easy for him. Oh, I hate these people anyhow. This is going to be easy. I can walk in and I can tell them they're going to be wiped out. And I'm, yeah, bring it on. He didn't want to go. From a humanitarian perspective, the prophet's attitude is certainly suspect. And the spirit of the words he uses, though, a day's journey in, and this town is going to take notice. Somebody doesn't walk into town behaving the way Jonah apparently behaved with a message like Jonah delivered and people just blow it off as a crazy Baptist. So the next thing we see happen here is the people of Nineveh believed God. Look at the next passage. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his, this evil way and from the violence that it is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here's another crazy thing about this passage. And Jonah would have known this. The first time this word believe is used in the Old Testament, it's used in relationship to Abram the father of the Jewish family. It's used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In fact, it's a very similar formula in Genesis 15 to what we see here. An impossible announcement is made, and 
the one receiving it believes the announcement and accepts it completely. In Abraham's case, he had just wiped out the invading tribes from the north, rescued Lot, his nephew, and these guys from the north had a tendency to come back down. And he realized, I just got lucky at that military venture. What if these guys come back? And he gets out, and he's walking, he can't sleep at night, and he looks up at the stars, and um, he says to God, God, you've you got to give me something here. You said that you would give me descendants, and I don't have anything. There's nothing to protect me here in this land to which you've called me. And God shows up, and he says, Abraham, look up at the, look up at the stars. Your descendants will be in number like the stars of the sky. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, this impossible kind of pronouncement reads, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it righteousness to him. Same exact word, same exact formula. Here's the prophet Jonah. He comes into Nineveh. He says the city's going to be overthrown in 40 days. And in the same spirit of faith demonstrated in the father of the Israeli people, the citizens of Nineveh, from the king all the way down to the cattle, believe God and repent. And this kind of faith always takes action. It always leads to action. There's a certain honest sort of self-reflection that occurs and a certain urgent sort of outward action. When you hear this message that, oh my gosh, my life has just gone off the rails. Things are unraveling and there's nothing I can do about it. The diagnosis is bleak. The first thing you ask is, man, why? Why me? And the king's decree seems to reflect the people's collective thought in answering that question. Each person is commanded to turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who told him that? All we hear from Jonah is, yet 40 days and the city of Nineveh will be, over, will be overthrown. Who told them that the real problem was their evil way or their violence? But that's the way it works, isn't it? When suddenly we're faced with our own mortality, suddenly we're faced with the accumulation of our deeds, the reality of our guilt, nobody needs to tell us why we feel this way. We get honest, honest with the truth that has been revealed to us. And that's what's happening here in Nineveh. They knew who they were. They were Nineveh. They were awful people in every respect of the word. There's no blame shifting here. There's no excuse making. There's no attempts to self-justify. For the first time, maybe ever, they looked at themselves honestly in the face of this imminent destruction, and they concluded that they were guilty as charged. I don't know if you realize it, but that's a beautiful thing. It would have been far worse for them to just blow it off to go into the process we usually go into of trying to explain it away because, as I said, the clock was ticking. And all of the self-denial, all the self-destruction, self-deception, uh, self excuse me, doesn't stop the clock from ticking. The faith-based conclusion that caused them to believe God led to some very exaggerated kinds of actions we saw the, uh, the, the calling out to God. By the way, 
that same word that we talked about Jonah using when he went into town and cried out against the city, that's the word used here. That same confrontational tone, that same intensity, that same urgency, it gripped their hearts and they were undone and they said, we have got to cry out to God. I love the logic of faith. The logic of faith says something like this. If God has made me aware of my doom, he has made me aware to rescue me. If God has made me to feel the depth of my guilt, he has done so in hope. And these pagan, violent, evil Ninevites somehow grasp this logic of faith and they call out with the same intensity that the sailors in chapter 1 did. They call out with the same intensity that the prophet did against the city. They call out to God because who knows, as the king said, perhaps, perhaps he will turn from his intent to destroy us. And they clothe themselves sackcloth. That's burlap kind of cloth, ashes, fasting. These are all Middle Eastern symbols of extreme sorrow and remorse. As if their words weren't enough, they backed it up with their deeds. And I've got to tell you, if you're back in this day where Jonah is living, there's nobody in the world who saw this coming. Nobody in Israel anticipated that this would ever happen. I mean, Jonah didn't even want to go there. My guess is the day before Jonah started his trip into the city of Nineveh, Nobody in Nineveh saw this coming. That the entire city of people would react to the severe message of this disobedient, fish-vomited prophet with such sincerity and fervor, it's unexplainable. Completely unexpected. And yet, like I said, this is an eyewitness account. Jonah's saying, I was there. This is what happened. I can't explain it. But what happens next is even more startling. We read in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If everything we've talked about so far is unprecedented, this is even more so. Up to this point in, human, or in ancient history, every time, that a people's crimes, a people group's crimes stack up to heaven, as Nineveh's did back in chapter 1. God said to Jonah, for their crimes have come up before me. Every time that formula is used prior to this point in ancient history, it has resulted in the annihilation of the people whose crimes have piled up. God's just hand of judgment has fallen on those people in just judgment, and they have been eliminated. For instance, the people of Noah's day. God looked down. Their crimes had come up before heaven. They were evil in all the thoughts and intents of their hearts. And the day the flood started, they perished except for Noah. In Genesis chapter 11, Babel, building its tower, wanting to make its claim to fame, God went down and said, I'm going to go down and see what's going on there. It doesn't sound good what I hear. And sure enough, they were scattered to the far corners of the planet. We've already mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels came down, strolled around, discovered it was worse than they had heard, and that was the end of Sodom and Gomorrah. Egypt, 
was decimated in its refusal to do God's bidding. Ten plagues wiped it out economically, militarily, as a people for decades, maybe centuries. The nations of Palestine fell under the heavy hand of Joshua, Saul, the judges, David, time after time in ancient history. When the crimes of a people had mounted up to heaven, the hand of justice had fallen, and the peoples had been wiped off the face of the planet. And now Nineveh, who is arguably the worst of the worst, if on anybody the hand of God should have fallen with fierce wrath, it should have been them. But it didn't. God looks at what they did, and he relents of the evil that he intended to do. It's crazy. The chapter opens with the prophet on the beach. The chapter closes with the prophet on a hill outside this awful city, scratching his head and saying, what on earth just happened here? And I'll leave it to Ian to try to unpack that uh, next week. But it does beg the question, so what are we supposed to make of this? What does this all mean? I don't know if you knew this, but Jonah is the first of Israel's writing prophets. I know, even though he's kind of packed away and after a bunch of prophets, Jonah is the first prophet in Israel to actually write things down in a book. So if we were to arrange the prophet section of the Old Testament in chronological order, Jonah would be right at the beginning of the pack. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the rest wrote their prophecies after Jonah's story happened. And so I suppose in this way, Jonah's prophecy kind of stands as a gate through which the rest of the prophets would try to write. This, this mystery that they tried to unravel. How is it that the ruler of the universe, the judge of the whole earth, how is it that that one is going to make peace with criminal peoples like Nineveh? And ultimately, as the record would prove, like Israel, how can he be just? and the justifier of the ungodly. How is that even possible? And all of the prophets at the core of their message are writing about the tension that we're left with after this first prophetic story is written down in Israel. As we said earlier, Jonah is not a case study. It's an account. It seems designed to make us ask, where is this going? What does this all mean? Jonah was a prophet. What he records points to something that's still to come. What happens in this story pictures something more real, something more substantial than just the events recorded. Jonah is writing about something greater than Jonah. That's what prophets do. And so we have to move to the, Old, or to the New Testament, to Jesus, to help us bring us in on what that something greater is. If we're going to get some answer to what does this all mean, we have to look to Jesus. And so I would direct your attention to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. It'll be on the screens, but if you want to get there in your Bible, feel free to do that. Matthew 12, verse 38. Let me just set it up, okay? Then we'll read it. Uh, in this passage, Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been talking to the people, and people are beginning to wonder, who is this guy? In fact, if you've been reading the community Bible reading with us this past week, you, you, know, you can see how people are working through 
who is this guy? He says he's the Messiah, but he doesn't look much like a Messiah to me. The stuff he's doing is impressive, but, well, there's the Romans. They're still out there. The Pharisees are having none of it, though. They, they are just really bent out of shape over this Jesus character. And they've gotten to the place in chapter 12 of Matthew where they're saying what he's doing, these miracles, quote-unquote, they're all the off, offshoot of the devil. So here they're challenging him. They come into this scene and they're demanding that he shows them some kind of definitive proof that he is who he claims to be. Now, I think it's interesting that in the face of this kind of challenge to Jesus, what Jesus does is not fire off this machine gun staccato of miracles, but he turns back to, of all places, the first of the Jewish prophets, this Jonah character. And he said, well, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Read with me on the screen, chapter 12 there. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, whatever Jonah was pointing to, whatever Jonah was about, Jesus is going to unpack what that something greater is. And if the people of Nineveh had such a response to what Jonah said, the clear implication is that we should have an equally significant response to what Jesus says. Let's just quickly unpack what he says here. First of all, Jesus makes it clear that there is a greater doom looming over a larger audience than there was in the days of Jonah. The contrast here that Jesus makes with the men of Nineveh is not the caliber of their crimes. They were known for their evil way and their violence. Jesus calls these people in Matthew chapter 12 an evil and adulterous generation. That's just basically, they're, they're equal. No, it, it's not so much that the crimes of the people in Jesus' day were greater than the crimes of Nineveh. That they were criminals was a given. But now the scope is so much larger it is extended beyond Nineveh. It is extended to the very people of God, the very leaders of the religious system in Jesus' day, and by extension to all beings on the planet. There's a doom that hangs over the men and women of planet Earth in the same way. that There was a doom that hung over the city of Nineveh. And the horror of the doom is greater too. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine that there's something worse than just obliteration, being wiped off the face of the planet. But Jesus says, in the judgment, the men of Nineveh will rise up. He's referring to this day on the backside of human history, where according to the scriptures, the entirety of the human race will be raised and will stand before the throne of God. Contrary to what we hear about ourselves in popular culture, we are more than a random collocation of atoms floating around accidentally in a universe without purpose. We, each and every one, 
are intentionally created beings. We've been gifted with life and more so with a soul that will never die, that will inhabit bodies that shall never perish. But there will be an accounting and there will be a judgment. And in the mind of Jesus, this is a far greater threat than whatever the prophet threatened Nineveh with. But not only that, not only is there a greater doom, there's also a greater rescuer on the scene than Jonah was. Had Jonah, the son of Amittai, not shown up in Nineveh, the city would have perished. Like so many cultures throughout ancient history, I mean, you can read about them in North America, you can read about them in South America, these massive cultures, Inca, Mayan, whatever, they, they rise up in their place and then they disappear without a trace. All we have is the wreckage left, and we try to figure out what went on here. That's happened time and again throughout history. And that would have been Nineveh's story had Jonah not shown up. And we've seen the complicated, sophisticated sovereignty of God, the energy he put in to getting this resistant prophet to the right place at the right time to deliver the right message so that Nineveh could be rescued. And now Jonah says, or excuse me, Jesus says, there's something greater here. He refers to himself here as the Son of Man. That popular self-description he uses that traces back to the book of Daniel, where one like the Son of Man stands before the Ancient of Days, and he is granted a kingdom that shall never end, that shall rule above all kingdoms. Jesus is referring to himself and if we're impressed with the sovereign orchestration of Jonah arriving in Nineveh against his will, how much more so should we be impressed with the sovereign choreography that brought Jesus into existence? I believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, conceived by the Holy Spirit according to prophecy, born of the Virgin Mary, according to prophecy, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, according to prophecy, who died, was buried, according to prophecy, who descended into hell, who rose again on the third day, according to prophecy, who ascended into the heavens, according to prophecy, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, according to prophecy. If we are impressed with what God has done to get Jonah to Nineveh, how much more what the Father did to get Jesus to us. And if Jonah came unwillingly, not so with Jesus. He did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he laid it aside. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he went even further. He humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, all of which he did willingly. If Jonah talks about a great rescue, then Jesus brings a greater rescuer. And it's not just that. There's a greater sign here. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that the sign that they will be given is not some staccato machine gun fire of miracles, but rather this. In the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the body of the earth, the heart of the earth, for three days and for three nights. 
This is the ultimate answer to the question the prophet struggled with. How can the just judge of the universe overlook the crimes of the guilty? How is it that people against whom those crimes are committed could cry out to God and say, God, rescue me. And time and again in the Psalms, that happens. Time and again throughout the Bible, that happens. How is it that the one to whom we who have been victims call out can forgive the criminal? It's bizarre to think about unless there's a greater sign that somehow encompasses three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so when Jesus went to the cross as the Lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world, he stood in our place before the divine judgment of God. He did not deserve it. We did. The animal sacrifices pictured throughout the Old Testament scriptures were fully and completely fulfilled in him. The blood of the innocent was shed for the crimes of the guilty so that the guilty could go free. And on that cross, it wasn't just a metaphoric death. He truly died. The crowds watching him knew he died. The Romans who executed him knew he was dead. The few disciples who buried him were convinced that he was dead. The time that passed from the crucifixion to the resurrection confirmed that he was dead. And yet, and yet, there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. The appearance of a prophet smelling of fish was compelling enough to the people of Nineveh to prompt repentance. How much more? the reality of a Savior risen from death. But it's not just a greater doom. It's not just a greater rescuer. It's not just a greater sign. It's also a greater invitation. Jesus notes in Matthew chapter 12 that the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And as we noted, the, preach, the message was severe and stark. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no kindness there. There's no options offered to them. There's no ambiguity that maybe it won't go one way. No, it's going one way. It's happening in 40 days. You guys are walking dead. Jonah never suggested that they repent. He didn't paint any picture of a better future for them. He offered no participation in the kingdom of God. He just came preaching. You're all dead men walking. Execution occurs in 40 days. And the men of Nineveh repented. But Jesus comes with a greater invitation. He too was preaching. His message was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like Jonah, he assumes that those to whom he speaks are dead men walking. You are guilty, and without taking action, you shall perish. But unlike Jonah, Jesus' invitation offers hope. Repent, he says and enter into the kingdom of God through me. We, who find ourselves in the same predicament that the Ninevites did, far off aliens from the household of faith, strangers to the covenants and promises, we are invited to draw near. Oh, my friend, man, if you're here today, and like the people of Nineveh, you just you feel this heavy hand of God's judgment looming over your soul. Do not minimize it.
but take hope. I extend to you the invitation Jesus offered, repent and enter the kingdom of God. As the people of Nineveh believed God, believed this good news, Jesus the Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again according to the Scriptures for us in this place, in this day. Something greater than Jonah is here. And let us pray.